So before we get started with the message today, it's a very um, it's a very confusing time in the life of our church. First of all, it's exciting, right? Because you have this new building that's coming, and then there's a, also a very a time full of anxiety because we have this new building. <laughs> and it's also a time of, of grief and sorrow um, for us. Um, many of you, uh, most of you, know Pedro in Haiti, his wife, and most of you know that she had been battling pancreatic cancer. Um, and for the last five months, it's been a traumatic roller coaster, and it's been emotional. <clears throat> and a couple of days ago, our precious sister, uh, she went to be home with Jesus. And it's sad for us, but you know what makes it something that we can deal with is if there's anybody that I know for sure is with Jesus right now, it's her. <laughs> she was an evangelist. I think most of her family knows Jesus because of her. <laughs> I don't think that's an exaggeration. This Thursday at 6 o'clock, we will be, Grace Life will be part of Haiti's Celebration of Life at 6 o'clock at Harbor Church in Bradenton. Isn't that right? Harbor Church in Bradenton at 6 o'clock. And any and all of you that are part of the Grace Life family, <clears throat> we would love for you to be there to celebrate the life of our sister uh, the impact that she's had, I learned a lot from her. Um, just a quick funny story that I'll be sharing on, on Thursday. She coined me a white O'Rican. <laughs> she coined that term. And I'll tell you more about that on Thursday, but she was a precious sister. and Our prayers are for our brother Pedro and his children <clears throat> and the family. We love you. We love you. We're thankful you're a part of our fellowship. So, just wanted to make sure you guys are aware of that Thursday, 6 o'clock. Let's talk about, before we go into the service, the worship, or the uh, sermon today, I want to remind you, starting next week, we start our new series on the book of Revelation called Letters from Heaven. Uh, another reason for me to be excited and anxious and full of anxiety <laughs> at the same time. <clears throat> There's a lot of expectations about what Revelation is about, and we're going to unfold those. But that's starting next week, Letters from Heaven. Uh, this week... It's the last message in our series on First and Second Peter. Um, remember, the first the series on First Peter was called "Remember the Cross," and this one was called "Remember These Things." <clears throat> and this is week twelve. It's and also part five of the mini series within the series on the return of Jesus. And I've entitled the message this week "Perfect Waiting." So I'm going to put a, uh, I'm do it a little bit differently than I normally. I'm going to put one verse from the very beginning of our passage up, and let me just say a couple things. Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The first thing I want you to make sure you understand, when he says waiting for these, <clears throat> what is it we're waiting for? It's about when Jesus returns, and there are two things he does. First, he gathers his church together, and then he exposes every evil and purifies his creation from it. Those are the these he's talking about. As we wait for Jesus to return and gather his church and then expose and dissolve and remove evil, you are to be diligent to make sure that he finds you without spot or blemish and at peace. No pressure, right? So 
obviously followers of Jesus are supposed to be those who wait for these two things. But what should our waiting actually look like? Isn't it great that we're talking about this right before we go into the book of Revelation? What does Peter mean when he says we should be found without spot or blemish and at peace? Three things. So question, what is harder? Believing that Jesus will return or being diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace? Which is harder to do? What does without spot or blemish and at peace even mean? Is living like that even possible for humans? How far does it go when he says you are to wait for these things without spot and without blemish and at peace? How far does that actually go? How many of us could say, right now I'm not asking you to raise your hand, and hopefully you won't when I give you this question. How many of you could say right now, oh yeah, I'm without spot, I'm without blemish, and I'm at peace? That would be what I call perfect waiting. How should perfect waiting impact our priorities, our choices, our relationships with one another and the world outside of the church? How do we know if there's ever times that we might be perfectly waiting? How do we know if we're not perfectly waiting? How do we know if we're ready to be found without spot or blemish and at peace? Wouldn't a checklist be helpful? Or maybe not. (laughs) Wouldn't it be great if somebody could give us a living example of what perfect waiting looks like so that we know what to do, what to follow, what example, to make sure that we know that we'll be found without spot and without blemish and at peace? Look at the passage for this week. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. We preached about that a few weeks ago. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. That's fascinating that he mentions Paul. And as he, Paul, does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. What matters? He's talking about the return of Jesus. There are some things in them, in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, oh yeah, have you ever read Romans and Hebrews? Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord And Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. In other words, the day he returns. Amen. Historically speaking, I want to tell you a little bit about Peter and Paul. First of all, all Paul's letters. He uses this phrase, as Paul wrote about in all his letters. We know that Paul and his team were responsible for planning most of the churches that were not in Jewish areas, in Gentile regions. Gentiles, in fact... People of all races and origins wore Paul's focus. He was taking the gospel, which started as a Jewish message, and taking it to people who weren't Jewish. We also know that when it comes to the New Testament writings, Paul is by far the most prolific of all the apostles when it comes to writing. 
Considering all of this, it is safe for us to assume that most people that were reading and hearing Peter's two letters, 1st and 2nd Peter, were familiar with Paul's teachings. As a matter of fact, if you remember back to our study of 1st Peter, in the very first verse of 1st Peter chapter 1, in the intro, he named all the churches that he intended to read these two letters, where it was to be distributed, and they were all churches in Gentile regions. And you remember what had happened here was there were Jewish people who, believing and heeding apostolic warnings, fled Jerusalem in the late 60s, like 67, 68 AD, to get away from Jerusalem before Rome came and conquered it. They fled Jerusalem into these Gentile regions, and they began, these Jewish believers, integrating into churches with Gentile believers. And it wasn't always easy having this multiracial church. There was different priorities and different traditions, and there was conflict, and there was arguments, and, and a lot of stuff like that was happening. But we do know this. One of the most prominent teachings of Paul was about the fact that there is this potential for this imminent return of Jesus one day, and that is the same exact topic in 2 Peter in the whole epistle. And in Peter's closing words, he declares this. He says, Paul's, this is amazing to me, Paul's writings on the return of Jesus, they are the authority on the topic. Isn't that fascinating? Peter, who many people thought to be the main apostle, says when it comes to the return of Jesus, God gave Paul wisdom. His writings are the authority on the return of Jesus. But their relationship was definitely complicated. Peter and Paul were both sort of like titans, right, in the early first century church. But remember, there was a time when their relationship was very splintered. Matter of fact, I'll read to you what Paul says about that time where he and Peter were at odds in Galatians chapter 2. I'll read it and explain it. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Well, I bet you did. Paul sounds like Paul, right? I opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, basically hanging out with them. But when these men from James came, he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles, fearing the circumcision group. See what Peter did there. He was fellowshipping with Gentiles. Then when people from the apostle James came, Peter said, you know, I don't want to be judged for hanging out with the Gentiles, so I'm just going to separate myself. Now listen, because of the wide circulation of both of Paul's letters and all of Peter's letters, most everyone in the early church, especially in the Gentile regions, knew about this conflict. Most of them had probably read the letter to the Galatians. And this conflict was born from how Jewish believers treated Gentile believers terribly, forcing them to be circumcised, looking down on them, they refused to eat, even eat at the same table with Gentiles. Jews refused to do this. And not only was Peter afraid to confront them on this racist behavior, he participated with them in this sin. Peter was not perfect. But ultimately, Peter knew that Paul was right when Paul confronted him to his face and says, Hey, what are you doing? And you know what Peter did? He humbly repented confessed his sin, and he reconciled with Paul, and they were, to borrow our phrase, and you'll see why this is important, they were at peace. 
This was a beautiful, this was not a, yes, it was a problem, but in the end, this is a beautiful early church success story about how the apostles, the leaders of the church, demonstrated humility and teachability and willingness to submit to one another in accountability and live together even with differences at peace. Don't dismiss this. This isn't normal human behavior. More on that later. But Peter says there are some that are twisting Paul's teaching. You know, Paul taught or referenced the return of Jesus in virtually all of his pastoral epistles. Here's just some of the passages where he did. He did it in 1 Corinthians. He did it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He did it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. He talked about the return of Jesus in Romans 5, in Romans 11, in Romans 13, in Philippians 3, in Philippians 4, in Galatians 4, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in Titus 1. There's a lot more. I just didn't have any more room on the screen. Look, it's very clear in Paul's writings that this is something he believed, that it was very possible, first of all, Jesus was going to return, but Paul believed it was very possible Jesus might return in his lifetime at any moment. But Paul also knew that Jesus taught no one could know when exactly Jesus would return. So Paul never predicted a time, a day, or a year. Paul actually taught, as we do at Grace Life and many churches do, that Jesus' return is delayed until all of God's chosen come to faith. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago, these fresh daily mercies. Remember we talked about what that really meant? That each day that the Lord delays his return is an expression of his mercy and grace as he holds back judgment, waiting for those he loves to come to Jesus and when Jesus didn't return before Paul was murdered and martyred for the name of the gospel, false teachers began to brutally attack his credibility, twisting his words. They called him foolish. See, he said Jesus would return during his lifetime. Of course, Paul never said that, but they twisted his words. And Jesus didn't return. Paul is unreliable. And if Paul's wrong about the return of Jesus then what else is he wrong about? He's probably wrong about the importance of being sexually pure. He's probably wrong about the kingdom of heaven. He's probably wrong about living in peace with one another. Paul is such a fool. Paul totally distorted. Look, Jesus didn't return. Paul said he would. Paul never said that, but they twisted his words. Paul totally distorts everything Jesus ever taught. Just dismiss him. Listen to us. We know better what Jesus really taught. That's what the false teachers were doing, what Peter describes. Look at the theology of this passage. What about God and what does he do and why and how does he do it? I've entitled this part, Our Brother Paul, and this is very important to understand what this passage is about. First of all, Peter says there is wisdom given him. I mean, this is beautiful. This is a beautiful, humble affirmation of Paul's apostolic authority by Peter. Think of it, Peter who is the most powerful apostle, the most well-known apostle. Remember when we studied our Gospel of Mark, he was the most outspoken. Peter witnessed everything Jesus did, everything he taught, everything he said during his three-year ministry. This guy, Peter, says when it comes to the return of Jesus, you want to know what Jesus taught? Read Paul's letters. Wow. Think about that. He compares, as a matter of fact, he compares Paul's writings 
to the other scriptures. What other scriptures does he mean? Here's what he says. Listen to me. Paul's writings are on the same level of authority as the Old Testament. Look, Paul, Peter says, we all rely on Paul's teachings about the return of Jesus. If I have to preach a sermon on it, I preach from his letters. God gave him that wisdom. And although some of what he teaches, Peter says, is difficult to understand, it's complicated, it's not easy. Even for the faithful, it's going to be hard. You've got you to really put your whole intellect to it. You can rely upon what he wrote and what he said. Now listen, you'll need to engage your full intellect into it to understand. In fact, we learned this earlier on throughout this whole Peter study. To really learn the Scripture, the safest way to comprehend the meaning of Scripture is how? To read it together in community. That's why the Scripture says there's safety in the counsel of many. So that's the wisdom given Paul. But then he calls these false teachers ignorant and unstable. Look what Paul says about these same false teachers in 1 Corinthians. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Peter says the ignorant and unstable, which by the way, think about this, there are two qualities in Peter's list of evidence of true faith that they have wrong. That these people that are ignorant and unstable, they're the opposite of knowledge and stability. Remember, we talked about that list over and over again. You remember that list, right? I've repeated it every week for a reason. Faith will give you virtue. Virtue gives you knowledge, which is the opposite of ignorance. Self-control, stability, which is the opposite of unstable, meaning you're not always constantly warring and fighting. Then he says godliness, community love, and love for your fellow man. These Ignorant and unstable false teachers twisted Paul's words. The last people you should be listening to about the complicated theology of the return of Jesus are these ignorant and unstable teachers. Rely on Paul's writing. They can't comprehend truth as children of God can. They think like natural people, so they're quick to twist Paul. But then we see something else that God does here. He creates this apostolic humility in these men. There's a rich lesson in Peter's words, a beautiful apostolic example of how we can actually be found waiting without spot or blemish and at peace. He tells us how to do it. It's significant that Peter uses the example. This is important. It's important that we see that Peter uses the example of his relationship with Paul to explain what that phrase without spot and blemish and at peace means. Both Peter and Paul had this inhuman supernatural humility and teachability that squashed any natural propensity for resentment or anger or frustration with one another. Now remember, Paul has been since martyred for at least two to three years he's been dead when this letter is written. Peter and John have taken over shepherding those churches that Paul started. I've told you in the past, I imagine there was a lot of letters that Paul wrote to Peter and James and John saying, listen, I know I'm going to die soon. You've got to take over and watch after my Gentile brothers and sisters. And that's what they're doing. And then Paul taught, as Peter does, the importance of the church 
living together in unity and at peace and righteousness as we work for the kingdom and wait for these things, the return of Jesus to gather his church and to purge the world of evil. But look what Paul says about his own apostolic ministry. This is pretty amazing too. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's who Paul was before Jesus appeared to him and called him to ministry. Paul was the guy who was trying to kill Christians. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. He is with me. See, Paul called himself the least of the apostles. You know, he wasn't even among the 12 apostles when Jesus was on earth. But Peter, in humility, elevates him. And here's what's so amazing. Who else in the world at this time would have the courage and the guts to confront or hold Peter accountable for his sin? I can only think of one, Paul. And he did. Held him accountable for his racism. Yet Peter was humble enough to let Paul, let Paul be the source of the theology of the return of Jesus that the early church would rely upon. There is no jealousy here. There is no resentment. There's no competition. Peter says, Paul is one of us, our beloved brother Paul. This wasn't Peter's natural inclination. Remember when we studied what Peter was like? He was impetuous. He was emotional. He often got angry. Remember he chopped off the guy's ear? Look what God has done in Peter's life, bringing him to a place where he could wait for the return of Jesus without spot, without blemish, and at peace. I love this. I love how Peter affirms Paul's authority. Peter models the qualities he defined as evidence of true faith, that list. Peter expresses respect and loyalty and affection for Paul and accepts Paul's writings as the authority given from God on the return of Jesus. Notice, this is all opposite of how the false teachers conducted themselves and how they treated Paul. Completely different. Peter gives us an example of how we should wait. All right, personal section. What about us? What are we supposed to do? I've entitled this, How to Be Ready. How do we get to the point of perfect waiting? This was my sermon preview on social media this week. Being ready for the return of Jesus starts with remembering each morning, new mercies each morning, how desperately we need his grace and mercy. We forget that often, don't we? See, Peter provides this pragmatic, real-life example of how to be found without spot without blemish and at peace when Jesus returns. He gives an example of virtue and of knowledge and of self-control and stability and godliness and community fellowship and unity and love for your fellow man. This is what it means to live without spot or blemish and at peace. Listen, perfect waiting that I described earlier isn't about living perfect lives. Good luck with that but it is about living in full, humble conscience of our own desperate need for mercy and grace, no matter how much you think your brother is sinning or your sister is sinning or your other church members in the other parts of the community are sinning or even the outside world is sinning. 
perfect waiting is centered around a church of Jesus striving to live together in humility and teachability and at peace with each other no matter what. This is, in fact, what Peter demonstrated through his affirmation and affection and submission to his brother Paul. It starts with recognizing that all of us are fallen sinners in a fallen world waiting for the day our Jesus comes and purifies everything, including our own hearts and minds. See, many Christians forget this. Not just how we treat the fallen world around us, but sadly how we treat each other. Listen, if you understand the return of Jesus, you don't understand these difficult things because you're just so much smarter or better people than others that don't know, that's arrogant. That's the opposite of Peter's example. When you understand and embrace and desire the return of Jesus, it is because it has been given to us just as it was given to Paul. And if understanding these things and the desire for things has been given to you, and you do understand how important the return of Jesus is, listen to me, church, there is no way around it. It will have a massive, profound impact on your life. I will tell you, you cannot be one who is chronically bitter, constantly angry, and unteachable, and be someone who's ready to be found without spot or blemish and at peace when Jesus returns. A life marred with bitterness and immorality and instability. I would say that is not a life that is really waiting for the return of Jesus at all. Even if you might believe in the return of Jesus, you're not waiting for it. It probably means if that is your life, you anticipate or desire something different than the return of Jesus. You want the world to be what you want it to be. And that's what you're waiting for. And when it's not that, you're bitter, angry, resentful. Look at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 4. This is back to the first letter. Chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. Look what he says to set up 2 Peter. This is in that previous one, okay? He says, the end of all things is at hand. Talking about the return of Jesus, even in that first letter. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. Above all, you're going to love this. This is what it means to be without spot and blemish and at peace. Above all. The most important thing while you're waiting. The most important thing to do is this. Keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Wow, I'm so thankful for that. Show hospitality. That doesn't mean just give each other free coffee, by the way. <laughs> it means whatever your fellow brother and sister in Christ needs, give it to them. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Man, we Christians, especially in America, we are so good at grumbling, aren't we? See, the gift of faith will most definitely create virtue, knowledge, self-control, stability, godliness, community, and love for our fellow man. We desire his return and all that comes with it more than anything we might hope this life or this world could possibly provide. And how does that play out? 
When we live that way, that is what it means that we will be diligent to be found without spot, without blemish, and at peace with one another, just as Peter showed us in his relationship with Paul. And listen, we don't live this way to try to gain God's favor. We're not trying to live this way to try to get some sort of a special season of blessings on us or even our family. There are many who diligently wait and go through hardship. Listen, we're not even as a church supposed to live that way to make America a Christian nation again. That is not our focus. I mean, it'd be great if it happens, but that's not what our main priority is or for any other nation in the world that, for that matter. Believers in Britain or Australia, their job is not to make their nation Christian nations. Here's our job. We should live without spot or blemish in peace with one another. Why? Why? We just want to see Jesus. That's all we want. Living as Peter and Paul taught us in their example with virtue, with knowledge, with self-control, stability, godliness, community affection, and brotherly love. That is living without spot or blemish and at peace. That is how we live if we truly are waiting for, as Peter says in this passage, these things. It's how followers of Jesus will conduct ourselves in a fallen world. Working and waiting for the day our precious Jesus returns, the day that we see him face to face, and he exposes and removes all evil in this world. How can we be found without spot or blemish and at peace? By following the example Peter gives us, the example of unity and humility that Peter and Paul had for one another. Now listen, living that way is not easy. But we do so with joy. And what is joy again? It is the supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God over anything else. And so, Peter wanted his readers, God wants us as well to remember these things. Jesus is returning, first of all. Remember that. You can count on it. So we remember to wait for these things, for him to gather his church and to expose evil. We wait for these things, our return of Jesus to gather us. And we must remember to be found in perfect waiting, as I've said it. Not sinless, we're going to struggle, but we're found without spot, without blemish, in unity and in peace with one another. And when we fail, and we will probably today, just as Peter failed, did he not? We remember to return to humility and unity as we wait for these things. These are the things we need to remember each day when fresh mercies are given to us, even as God's fresh mercies delay his return yet another day. As we wait for the rest of his chosen children to come to Christ, we will wait and be diligent to be found without spot, 
without blemish, at peace. Above all, above all, that means above all. <laughs> Keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show sacrificial generosity. That's what hospitality means to one another without grumbling. Church, remember these things. Heavenly Dad, first of all, corporately and individually, we confess to you. We often don't live without spot or blemish and at peace. We live in judgment or arrogance or impatience. Lord, it's such a hard thing to battle this flesh. Paul said that as well. Every day we battle it. But Lord, we want to be found without spot and blemish. So Lord, I just pray that you would give us this insatiable desire in our heart to protect our unity no matter what. We know the enemy will come after it. We know the world works against it. We know hardships come. We know that we all fail one another. But Lord, none of that will be so overwhelming if we keep our eyes and focus on these things. The day you return and gather us and the day you expose all evil and purify it from your creation. Lord, help us to remember these things. Help us to see the example that Peter and Paul set and follow it. We would live together in humility, in teachability, and accountability so that we can be found without spot, without blemish, and at peace when you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we love you. Hopefully see many of you there Thursday night at 6 o'clock. Next week we start Revelation. Have a great week.